Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 105. This week, we talk with Paul Betts about building Slack on Electron Shell and installing it with Squirrel. Finding bugs in physical buildings. And SharePoint. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week, we have Paul Betts. He's a senior developer at Slack, working on the Slack desktop app, and has an open source repo or 2,000. <laughs> How's it going, Paul? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good. And uh, Carl, what about you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'd just like to remind everybody that we're going to be at that conference this year. That is an awesome conference that's in Wisconsin Dells. And if you uh, sign up now, you can still get a uh, room at the discounted block rate if you mm-hmm. just mentioned that conference when you're booking your motel at the Kalahari. So uh, we're looking forward to meeting everybody there uh, who listens to the show. And hopefully we'll get a few more listeners when we're there. Okay. And definitely stay at the Kalahari. I tried a different hotel this last time. It was not good. <laughs> Trust me. That's the that's one with the, like, the water parks, right? It sounds pretty great. Yes. Wisconsin. Yeah. The water park capital of the world, which I, I never understood because we don't really have the climate for it. Like it gets hot in the summer, but um, mm-hmm. you know, you go down to Florida and you know, they they have different water parks and beaches that are scattered all over the place. And you tell me, yeah, the water park capital of the world is in Wisconsin. Like, you know, they've heard of that. But it always makes me think, like, what is the point? Because it's closed. You know, they're closed like six months out of the year. But the Kalahari is nice because it is uh, half of it's indoor and it is a very good indoor water park. So you can go to that one year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mount Olympus is the is the one that uh, you do not want to go to. That was the one we went to. Not good. Not good. It was just terrible. Just never go there. OK, Carl, who do we have for the Infragistics Ultimate Winner of the Week? Uh, this week, we picked Neil Turner off of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And he was commenting to our recent uh, edition of YouTube uh, video. Mm-hmm. And he says, faces for radio in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, yes, that is something that we were expecting. But, uh, Neil, that comment got you the Infragistics Ultimate License this week. And if, like Neil, you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com or comment on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We also really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Thank you. And uh, Neil, you have a really tiny head. I just want to point that out. Oh, wait, maybe it's, oh, it's it's just because it's, it's just the thumbnail on Twitter. Okay. It's probably a normal size head. And and I've actually met Neil in person as well. So (laughs) he's a great guy. I was totally kidding. I was, that was a joke about the thumbnail. Uh, Yeah. And make sure all of you subscribe out there on uh, YouTube so we can get those subscriber counts up. We really appreciate that. Okay. Let's jump into the news. Um, And I just want to let everybody know too. So we're recording this a week and a half before publishing. Normally we are extremely timely. Like we usually record the same day that we publish, but this we are doing way ahead of time. So if this news has completely changed and we're missing something huge, that's the reason for it. Uh, Because I have a big move coming up. So it's totally my fault. Uh, Okay, so the bug in the physical building. So I thought this was a really interesting article. So what this talks about, it it kind of alludes to it a little bit more at the end. It talks about, you know, when when we look at architecture Mm -hmm. and we look at software, like, man, like a lot of software has a lot of bugs. And architecture, we we don't see stuff like that in architecture. And uh, this is the story about the Citigroup Center in New York. And kind of what happened is New York, there's a uh, a very limited amount of real estate that th- there is. Mm-hmm. And when they went to build this building, uh, uh, of course, land was hard to get. And they found a church that was willing to let them build this skyscraper on their property with a few restrictions that you can't touch the church. <laughs> so they're like, okay, we'll build over the church. Yeah. And But one of the other problems was the church was in a corner. So you couldn't just put like you know, a beam in each corner. Yeah. So they did a few things. They put the the beams kind of in the middle of each side. And uh, that, that led to a few uh, other issues. So also when they were uh, building this, uh, one of the people that were building it were like, hey, we did the math. If instead of doing welds, 
we uh, bolt, uh, use bolts, uh, we should be just fine. Mm-hmm. Well, when you kind of bring both of these things into uh, consideration that you kind of place the, the stability in a different spot than normal because corners are really strong because that's where the walls meet. Yeah. And uh, welds are stronger than bolts. Well, you get into an issue because normally one of the tests that you do to for a strength of building is to see how much wind that it can take on its face. Yeah. And usually that's the weakest part of a building. So they assume that wind hitting it at a corner, uh, since that on a normal building, that's not as much force, that's not going to be an issue. But on this building, because its support structures were in a different spot, that became an issue. Yeah. If they wouldn't have changed the welding to bolts, it wouldn't have been an issue. But because they had those two minor things in conjunction, that became a huge issue. And I think the kind of lesson here is, you know, architecture, we've been doing architecture for thousands of years. And we kind of know, you know, what to expect from materials and and when we design certain things. Well, software engineering has only been around for a couple of decades. So we don't have that huge, um, you know, back history of knowledge to work off of. And, you know, if, if just a couple of small tweaks can make a, a building potentially, you know, have a catastrophic failure, which this one, one hasn't yet, but it's expected to have a very short lifespan. <laughs> um, That's terrible. So yeah. basically it's like, you know, it's, it's like a, a known glitch in, you know, like an aircraft and in the, the aircraft is going to crash. It, yeah. Cause I didn't really understand. Cause the, the end, it just says that it's like predicted that this thing is going to fall over. Yes. Um, so explain this, I, I guess, does it say what year this was built? It doesn't, and I was thinking of looking it up, but I didn't. I, I do know it was somewhat recent, though. Okay, because I'm just, it, it's, I would think, and maybe it's just far too complex, I would think that you could completely model all the physical characteristics of a building in software. And I know that that would take, like, you know, the yeah. cloud to actually do that. But it's like, shouldn't you be able to model all of the, I mean, they did it, obviously, afterward. Mm-hmm. But you think you think before you built it, like you could do a full model. I mean, there's like those games, and this is a really horrible analogy, probably where you like build the bridge, right? And it it knows like the structural integrity of the bridge, and and you can add like different factors. So that that's that's what seems weird to me is um, that's one thing we ty- typically don't. We, so we have one disadvantage in software that uh, you know we um, we can't do something like that. We can't. It's really impossible to model it to, you know, to, with any, anything, any reasonable result. But the good thing is we can have our building fall over and we just put it back up like instantly. <laughs> we can script creating a new version of it. Um, so yeah, it's just, I thought, I thought that was sort of a fascinating parallel, but at the same time, it's, it's sort of irrelevant in, in, in how different it is. Yeah. But one of the things that I think I, I took an appreciation for is how young our industry is yeah. and how exciting it is to be in this, you know, spot where we can do things that are new all the time. Yeah. I wonder if they can just go weld these things now, you know, it's probably all covered up, but I wonder yeah, if they I, could like retrofit the welds. I, I'm thinking <laughs> that that's probably not feasible. Yeah. Or just wrap the whole thing in like tape or something. I mean, the other uh, thing you gotta remember, the other thing you gotta remember is that, um, yeah. um, when you build a bridge, you don't invent a new bridge. You go in a book and you look yeah. at the kind of bridge you want. Uh, software engineering there's no point in inventing the same thing over and over. You're not building the same thing over and over. Every single thing you build is something new, right? That's the whole point of software. And so like every, every project is a completely new thing. Yeah. There's Um, not a lot of material reuse yet. That's a good point. Okay.net framework compatibility. Yeah. So there was a recent post out there on the MSDN blogs. I thought that was just really interesting on how the .NET framework works, especially when it comes to different versions, Mm -hmm. kind of what happens internally in there as well. So if if you install like .NET 4.0 and then uh, another version comes out like 4.5 and you install that over it, you're you're going to blow away version 4.0. There will only be one 4.x version out there. So when you install 4.5.2 and 4.6, they just blow away the previous one. But when you write an application and you target like, you know, .NET 4.0, it still runs. And internally, there may have been things that have changed in the .NET framework that um, your app could be depending upon. And this kind of explains two kind of concepts on how the .NET framework handles that uh, with uh, uh, they're called targeting and quirking. So targeting is exactly what, you know, 
most developers are used to. Uh, when you select, hey, I want to, I want this to compile on the .NET Framework 4.0 or 4.5 or whatever. Uh, that's what it's targeting. When the .NET Framework sees your application, it can use that and um, to do what's called quirking. And what that is is, if it sees that you're running a, an older version that may have a different code path, it'll actually run an, a, a different version of the code of the .NET Framework. And uh, I think that's kind of a cool concept that uh, most developers aren't uh, aware of. I've heard of it in the past, but I didn't really look at it again mm-hmm. uh, until I saw this article. Yeah. So if 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 that's something you'd you'd be interested, or if you're seeing some uh, compatibility issues in an application that is targeting an older version of of the .NET framework, because like 4.0 is no longer technically supported, uh, it still works in many cases, but there are a few issues. And then this article even goes on to say, you know, if you do see an issue, what you can do about it. Yeah, I lost track around version 3.5. It got a little, it got confusing after that point. And then you throw into it the fact that like C Sharp has its own versions. And, you know, we had talked to uh, to Mads about that and, and how that can sort of get rev separately. And then I remember when some, some features came out, um, what was, was it version 3.5? And you could sort of, you could, if you use a new version of Visual Studio, you could use some of those features because they're really just syntactic sugar. Uh, it's definitely gotten, uh, it's definitely gotten complicated. But yeah, it seems like this breaks it down pretty well in, in how you actually do the targeting. Okay, and this should make things easier as well. Introducing docs.microsoft.com. So this is uh, something that, uh, as we're recording, came out yesterday. Yep. And there's a new documentation site that is at the URL that Jason mentioned. And right now it uh, has a little bit more of a focused uh, set of documentation. It's only really showing the Microsoft Enterprise Mobility documentation. But over time, more and more documentation is going to be migrated over to this platform. And some of the things that it does is they put a little bit more uh, effort, thought, into the design of it to make these more readable, more understandable by developers, and even just put uh, a few more nice-to-haves in there. So when you look at a, a very specific page, it'll tell you at the top like how long it'll take to read it. Yeah, so That's pretty cool. Uh, they've also they've done a ton of research. You can check out the blog post in the show notes. But you know, just like how do people actually look at documentation and kind of using that to design documentation that's easier to look at. Okay. I was just looking because people are complaining about the, the pop-ups like moving content, but I'm not seeing that. So I wonder if that's just been fixed already. Um, one thing I like is that pretty much all of, well, I shouldn't say pretty much all, all of, all of the modern like Azure documentation and I'm sure everything going forward in here is all in GitHub. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know I've really like pushed this agenda on, <laughs> on the podcast a lot. If you see a mistake, just go out there and fix it. It's easier than you think. Um, you know, if you see a typo or something like that, in fact, we recorded last week's show yesterday. So it's yesterday for me, it's last week for everybody who's listening. And I actually, I saw some typos in their documentation. They didn't have them in GitHub. Um, so I actually just submitted a support ticket with those, with those changes, but you know, like it's, it's up to all of us to make these, uh, documentation better. Uh, okay. It's the Wikipedia problem, right? It's the Wikipedia problem, right? Like nobody sees the edit button. Um, yeah. even though, even though Wikipedia makes it so much even easier than GitHub, right? Like GitHub makes you like do this rigmarole of like opening a pull request, but like the edit button on yeah. Wikipedia, you're just like, people read Wikipedia and say like, Oh yeah, that's wrong. That's not right. And they'll just stare at it. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> the edit button's right there. Just yeah. fix it. And I like people are like shocked. Like I go and like types, like I was like, I was like, find something, you know, I'm with friends or like find something that I don't like on Wikipedia. And they're like, Oh, see, I'm right. I'm like, hold on a second. Now, like, you can't do that. I'm like, I'm not going to actually do it, but like, <laughs> I could. Yeah. Wikipedia yeah, is editable. I, I just find Wikipedia intimidating for whatever reason. I think it's because if you go into the discussion on a page, they're so hardcore. There's like very strict rules around Wikipedia, which is good, but I, I find it intimidating because of that. Whereas GitHub, like I, I'm as a developer, I'm in there all the time. And for people who don't know, there's, if you're looking at a page and it's incorrect, there's a little pencil icon. Um, so you don't even have to like pull the code or do any of that kind of stuff. So a lot of the complexity you're talking about, um, gets easier whenever, whenever you use that button right on the, on the page. Totally. Uh, 
makes it pretty. So do you think people still find it intimidating though, even with that pencil thing that like, Hey, this is this Microsoft documentation. I'm not from Microsoft. I don't know. (laughs) I wouldn't. I think that that, um, they don't know what it's going to do. And so they're afraid of breaking something. Yeah. And so like they'll hit the edit button well, and they'll the, be the like, 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 am I going to wreck it? No yeah. Markdown. Yeah. I think, I think, I think any developer that knows Markdown probably isn't intimidated. Yeah. And if you didn't know Markdown, I'd be really scared because it's like, well, there's some weird symbols in here every once in a while. And then I would be, I would be scared to edit then. So just learn Markdown and there's a preview button there too. So you can see what it's going to look like and um, just start with typos. You know, obviously don't make like huge changes until you actually, until you really know the project. Uh, but yeah, the more, the more you're using a project, the more you should be in there helping improve those things. I've gone in there and there's been missing steps. You know, it says like, Hey, do this, then this, then this. And I've submitted requests, you know, Hey, you're missing step number two. Um, and here's what it is. And I just sent, I just issued that pull request and those, I found those to be accepted typically within just a couple of hours. And then all the you know, documentation other gets regenerated and your, your fixes is, is up there. And just so everybody knows like all of our websites are like that too. And when I say ours, I mean the MS dev show, like the MS dev show.com, uh, my blog, you can go out there. There's an edit button on every single one of my blog posts. And, you know, I'm trying to make everything editable. Speaking of editable, let's talk about SharePoint. So <laughs> I know it's funny because SharePoint used to be like, you know, when I was a developer, like I didn't really know what SharePoint did. This was, you know, let's say like eight years ago when I, I just had to like, you know, live with like SharePoint being on the same machine from a development perspective. And it was just, it was just horrible um, the way SharePoint like took over IS and stuff. And then once I started to use it, actually like using SharePoint, like the way it's intended, like it's pretty handy at what it does. So what's being announced, there's a couple different things here. There's basically um, some look and feel type things. You can see w- what um, what things are going to look like um, on Office 365 coming up. And then there's also, and this is a pretty big announcement, uh, mobile apps coming out for um, iOS, Android, and Windows Phone that are basically SharePoint clients. And what's kind of interesting, did you ever search for SharePoint on, on iOS, Carl? No. So the first client that comes up, so I think I'm just like, oh, I, b- I bet you there's third party SharePoint clients in there. Sure enough, there is one, and it's by Infragistics. <laughs> they have the they have the first result in there, uh, which I I got a kick out of. So honestly, like as a stopgap, if you need like mobile SharePoint functionality, I would take a look at the Infragistics one. Um, and and you know they are a sponsor. That's a disclaimer. Uh, but this iOS version, uh, it says second. Oh no, it says doesn't really have a date, but it looks like it's imminent because the windows and Android version are going to be second half of 2016. sounds like iOS is going to be before that. So that'll probably drop, you know, at, at any time here, it might even be out already by the time we're doing this podcast. So an official SharePoint app where you can go in there and I looked at it, you can, you know, it's kind of nice. You can see what's going on with uh, the SharePoint documents on your team and look at notes and all that kind of stuff. So it's basically unifying the internet for your, uh, for your team. Um, so it was kind of nice from that perspective. So it's great if you're using SharePoint, if you're not using SharePoint, I suppose the, the mobile app is probably pretty useless. Uh, okay. Any other comments on that? You guys aren't SharePoint fans. No, <laughs> people love it though. People yeah. in office, like even, even when I worked at Microsoft, we we're like SharePoint, like really? And then we talked to like our customers and like, people were like, this is amazing. So you got to remember what their alternative was, right? Like I used to email my documents and yeah. I'd have like V1, V1 final, V1 final, final, yep. V1 edit final with edit. <laughs> really, really final this time. And uh, it was a disaster, right? And so like um, SharePoint was like, I can just like upload it and it, like it remembers versions. Wow. Like that's crazy. So yeah. Well, and, and like not it. even that. I mean, now just being integrated with like Office Online, I mean, you just go in there and you edit it. It's automatically tracking versioning. You can do concurrent edits in real time, uh, kind of like, you know, what uh, Google Docs really pioneered. And um, and that that's really cool, the concurrent document editing with full version history. But yeah, everybody's still in that habit. I see so many times when I go in, somebody sends me a link to a document, I look and sort of V1, V2, V3. It's like, no, like, you know, that SharePoint does versioning, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's scary and people don't like to change. Oh, okay. Paul. So let's, uh, I think we have, we have quite a few things that we can talk about it. it. You know, like we mentioned earlier, you have, uh, lots and lots of GitHub repos. It sounds like you do a little bit of everything. 
Um, so we really wanted to focus on kind of a, a small list, but I guess, first of all, um, you know, just kind of give us a little bit of your background and what you do at Slack. Cool. So at Slack, I work on the Slack desktop app, um, which right now, uh, it's a little confusing because Slack actually has two desktop apps right now. One that's, um, uh, that was the original one written solely for Mac. Um, okay. And uh, that's the one, like, if you go to slack.com slash downloads um, and download the, the Mac app, uh, you'll get that one. Um, and so that's the one that uh, was the original version. And so the wor- version I work on um, is the one um, that is for, right now, shipping on Windows and Linux. So if you use Windows and use this app, that's the one I work on. Okay. Um, and it's also the same the same code and the same project uh, on Linux. Um, so if you take our repo on GitHub, uh, our private repo and clone it, um, and build it on Windows, you get a Windows app. And if you build it on Mac, you get a Mac app. And if you build it on Linux, you get a Linux app. Okay. Um, well, that's good to know. Cool. So they're so they're different now, but they're going to be the same. Yeah, eventually. Um, soon. Um, <laughs> we come out in a week and a half. So is it sooner than a week and a half? Uh, not that soon. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so that's what I do. I've been working here since about uh, last October. So um, before that, I used to work at GitHub working on um, GitHub Desktop. So the desktop client. Oh, okay. Um, that you download that uh, sets up Git for you on Windows. On Windows, it's particularly important because Windows doesn't come with Git in the, in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of sets up all this stuff and sets it up in a really like Windows developer friendly way. Yes. Um, so it used to be that you know the only version of Git was like a version of Git, like MSys Git, right? So like it was like Git for Linux developers who somehow found themselves on Windows <laughs> by mistake. <laughs> And so, like, do things like it open a Bash shell, and you're like, what the hell is Bash? Uh, and it open, you know, VI is your commit editor, and I'm like, I don't know how to type. Um, and so uh, we fixed it so it was for Windows developers. So it would open PowerShell, and it would uh, use Notepad as your commit editor and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, no, it's, or, it, that, that is an awesome project because that is how I get Git on my machines is yeah. I use GitHub. And then the other thing, we had uh, Phil Hack on, like, you know, a long, 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 long time ago. But uh, the biggest, like this was like a life-changing uh, thing that he told me is that you can hit the tilde whenever you're on a GitHub project and it'll open up the prompt with that as the as the context. Yep. yep. Oh, you know how much time that saved me? <laughs> like I need to send like Phil Hack like a check for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's his, that's his pet feature. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah. So, um, and it does stuff like um, put MS build in path. So you can type MS build and then build .NET projects uh, straight out of the gate. Um, and um, yeah, so I worked on that for a long time. And uh, before that, I used to work at Microsoft um, doing uh, kernel and driver stuff. So okay. I worked a lot with um, CD burning back when like Blu-ray was just coming out. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of bugs around that. Um, and so trying to <laughs> trying like to make that work on on Windows Vista and Windows Seven. Um, but uh, yeah, it was cool. Okay. All right, so you know, moving on to like what you're doing right now with the with the Slack desktop app, you're using something called Electron Shell. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So Electron is this platform. Uh, it used to be called Atom Shell. It's very confusing. Um, so Atom is a text editor from GitHub. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like similar to Sublime or or um, these kind of modern or uh, TextMate. Um, and so Atom is a HTML and CSS and JavaScript application that you use to edit text files. That's a program editor. Um, it was built using this platform uh, that was originally built just for Atom. Um, like it didn't, like literally it would, it was hard coded to atom.exe is the thing it would build. Um, and so they're like, well, this could be a useful platform to build applications that aren't text editors. Um, you yeah. can build all kinds of stuff. Um, and so Electron uh, is what they renamed it to. Um, and so Electron is this platform for building desktop applications using web technologies. Um, so that means that you will, uh, instead of writing in Cocoa or C Sharp or WPF or whatever Linux people do, uh, GTK, something painful, um, <laughs> instead you'll write using HTML and CSS and JavaScript, um, and you'll get to use all of the things that are in the latest version of Chrome. So unlike a lot, unlike web platforms where you're like, go to caniuse.com and like look up a cool new thing and get depressed when like none of your browsers support it. Um, you don't have to think about any other browsers. You just think about whatever Chrome, um, at the moment, 49, which is uh, one behind the latest, but we're working on porting to Chrome 50, which is the latest production version of Chrome. 
whatever it can do, you can do. Um, so that's super cool. So it's like um, you get all the coolest new web features now um, and can use them there. And the other thing is that it builds in, uh, this is the part, that, the part that's different. Um, so not only do you get to use anything that a web browser can do, um, you can use, uh, it builds Node.js into the Chrome run loop. So that means that you can include, uh, you can open up like DevTools and type requirefs, just like a Node app, and it works. Um, so that means you can include third-party NPM, any NPM module, um, including native NPM modules. So like you can write NPM modules in JavaScript, or you can write them in C++, and it's really annoying, but like luckily other people have written a lot of interesting ones um, that you can just use. And so those those modules can do whatever they want. And they're running at desktop code level. So that means they can like um, open notifications or like... Um, they can write a file? They can write files. They can, they can delete your hard drive. They can do anything. <laughs> um, anything that a desktop app can do. Okay. Um, and so that means that Electron can gives you all the good parts of the web, but you can also do anything that a desktop app can do. That's really cool. So I'm just, I'm staring at the Slack windows application right now. So basically all of the UI is HTML, CSS. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then if I go to, I'm trying to find something that would sort of be native. So um, like the, the, the menus, the menus like the are, for example, the menus are, are, yeah. are actually, well, <laughs> um, on windows, they're not <laughs> native. Um, they're actually like custom drawn, but they're drawn in C plus plus. They're drawn using native code. They're not okay. drawn using HTML. Um, on Mac, there are standard window like menus that you'd see in the top bar. Like, um, and so this is a Chromium detail. Like Google Chrome does the same thing. Um, but um, yeah, so so very little of this UI is native code. Um, it's all HTML. That team switcher, if you're logging to more than one team, yep. is is all HTML. Um, it's like a flexbox. And like um, in version 2.0 of Slack Desktop, we moved to React. So these are all React components you see on the left. Oh, very cool. Um, and um, yeah, so it's all HTML. Um, and so if you if you had the secret cheat code, um, you could you could open DevTools and like poke around. Oh, that's pretty. Now cool. I remember when this first came out, DevTools weren't locked down. So is that something you had to do special or? So we actually had to do the opposite. You actually have to add DevTools into the menu, um, and you have to. Um, uh, it's not it's not built into Electron apps, so you have to explicitly add it. And so there's a, there's a bunch of ways to get to it. It's just kind of like a pain in the ass to describe. So um, it was um, uh, just trying to. Uh, it's it's in the new version. In the new version I'm working on, um, the way you get to it is you go to the sidebar and double click it, or you click on it seven times. So you just like go to the sidebar and keep clicking really fast, and then it'll pop up um, because it's easy to describe to support people. <laughs> how to uh, like how to describe to users in support uh, how to open dev tools um, right now it's kind of more complicated you have to like create some files and like restart the app <laughs> darn infragistics ultimate ux and ui tools and enterprise mobility solutions share plus and report plus enable high performance apps on any device faster data insights simplified collaboration and market leading security all backed by comprehensive support with Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, while wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. How much platform-specific code is there then like between the Mac version? Because I know it doesn't exist yet, so obviously there's like some things you have to add in there. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, we do a couple things to, to be able to call into uh, native code. Uh, Windows is actually the most, has the most um, unique stuff, like the most platform unique code. Okay. Um, so one thing we do is we use this project called EdgeJS um, by um, 
um, Tomas, uh, I can't pronounce his name because he's from the Czech Republic and it's very complicated. Um, so we wrote this project called EdgeJS and it's super cool because it lets you call C-sharp code from uh, JavaScript. So we load his module, and then we have a library that we use for um, showing Windows 10 notifications. So on, if you get a notification in Windows 10, it looks like a Windows 10 application. It shows on the side, it shows in the action bar, or in the action center, rather. Um, and so we, from, from JavaScript, can call into a C-sharp code. And uh, it's all based on tasks. So you get it, they convert methods that return task of T um, into something that passes back a promise in JavaScript. Um, and so, yeah, so we use so we use that for certain things um, on Windows. Um, another library that we use is called Node-FFI, which lets you call C functions from JavaScript. Okay. So you can actually... Basically wanted to use every language possible. Well, so like on like different platforms, different things are easier to call, yeah, right? Like so right. calling, creating um, notifications from C++ is not a joy in, right. uh, in Windows. Uh, C-sharp is far easier. And so that's what we did. But on but on Mac and Linux, we're not going to ship mono with built in the platform. That's a little bit. It's a lot of work, and like there's a lot of uh, uh, overhead. We have to ship the entire .NET framework. We don't do that. Um, so um, we use that to call into C functions and Objective C Objective C functions. Um, so on Mac, we'll like use it to query like um, the idle time, like for example, like how long your machine has been sitting, so we know to mark you as away if your computer's been not doing anything for too long. Um, and uh, those are the two main ways. The other, we also have some custom node, uh, native node modules that we've written um, or modified. Um, they're all generally open source, um, so like they're just like hanging out on my GitHub repo. Um, and so we just like that time we just end up writing the same code three times, um, depending on the platform. Like the spell checker is a really good example of that, where like we had to write like on Windows, you use the Windows 8 APIs, or if you're on Windows 7, then you have to use uh, an open source library because there is no Windows spell checker API in Windows 7. Um, and on Mac, you use the Mac spell checker API, and on Linux, you use this open source library. Um, so some things are more complicated than others, but luckily a lot of it has been done for you. Like you can just, if it's a module that's already been written, you just like NPM install it and you're good to go. So you mentioned you go back to Windows 7. How far back do you go? Or I mean, is it is that really an Electron restriction then? How like what version of Windows you can support? Yeah, so Electron only supports Windows 7 and higher. Okay. Um, and that's not like a supported. It like actually does not would not launch on Vista <laughs> or lower. Okay. Um, because we use Windows 7 Touch APIs. Oh. Um, and so uh, they do not work on lower platforms. Okay. Um, and so a few people have been asking for Windows XP support, but like they should reconsider their life choices just, uh, <laughs> just, just tell them it's it's coming in a few years <laughs> yeah <laughs> just keep um, saying that so so yeah so windows 7 and higher um and i like i really wish it was not windows like windows 10 only would be a great place to be um but we're not quite there yet yeah um, no so. absolutely not all right so you know if i have like an existing web app is that something I can just shove into Electron, or do I craft my HTML and that's JavaScript? A dev, that's a dev terminology. Electron. Shove. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one thing you want to think about is that you want to, you can do it. Um, it's not great um, because you generally want to when you write an electronic app, you want to run local content. Remember, because like in general, these things can access the desktop, they can access whatever they want, um, and so we want to run things like ship ship the bytes, the, the code that we're running on their machine. So it acts like it's a similar like security model as a desktop app. Running remote content means you have to be a little bit more careful. There's ways to do it. Um, there's this uh, thing called a web view tag, which is kind of like an iframe, but like with superpowers that yeah. kind of like can shield, can, can like remove this desktop integration. So it means that anything inside the web view cannot access, you know, cannot format your hard drive. Um, but you can put stuff into the web view that you decide. Um, and so this is what Slack does, right? It runs remote content. It's running Slack, uh, the Slack web client. Um, and it's injecting APIs into it and giving this web client extra powers that it couldn't do normally. But it doesn't give the web client the power to delete your hard drive or do whatever it wants. Okay. Um, running local content is far easier. Um, and so, like, you really should think of building an Electron app kind of like a single-page application. Um, it's a really similar pattern. Like, there's kind of no... 
you don't think about URL so much. There's no routing. Um, you really think of it as just like a single page, and it's just loading stuff over JavaScript. It's the best way to do it. Now, if you have an existing web application, there's certainly ways to to wrap that up and to include it in in a desktop application and kind of add some extra things. Um, but if you're building from scratch, um, thinking of it as a kind of like the Angular model of like you know like single page, like yeah. loading everything over JavaScript is a great way to kind of conceptualize how to picture an electron application. Yeah. Cause yeah. your server is like non-existent. So you don't want to be like sitting there trying to go back to the server all the time. Yep. And so like people run your desktop app on an airplane, like what happens then? So like thinking about the offline case is way more important because like desktop apps have this expectation that they like. Yeah. Do that's kind of the point. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, other than something like Slack, although I can, I mean, I can still run it obviously and, and view my messages and stuff like that. I'm just not going to get new information. So it works yeah. as expected. And we want Slack in general to be way better with online, so offline support as well because, yeah. because of that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess we, we mentioned some of the things that you should do, but you know, just like with, with your general experience, are there, are there certain types of applications that are, are better with Electron? I mean, it, there's, there's people listening to this podcast and they're, they're probably thinking, you know, okay, I have an application that's a web application. Should I put this into Electron? I mean, do you have any guidance there? I think that, um, just, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to take every web website and turn it into an Electron app, right? Um, I think that, uh, like, some things, like, work really well in the web, like things related to content. Like, you wouldn't want Wikipedia in a desktop app, right? Um, maybe you would, uh, but but um, you probably wouldn't. Uh, like, the offline thing would be, like, the motivational factor, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but the web can do sort of offline as well. I mean, there, there might be, well, so you can, you can really do offline when you do things like service workers. So, um, service workers are a thing that are supported, fully supported in electron and, and are this really interesting, um, way to write an offline app and kind of add it to your existing app without having to rewrite the whole thing. So like a lot of these offline, like proposals for the web for like creating offline applications really required you to like architect your entire app around it. Um, where service workers kind of like lets you add it, um, in. And so this is a web technology. It's not a part of Electron, so you can actually use it in Chrome today. Um, and um, so, yeah, so this, you could com- combine uh, service workers and Electron to make something really cool as well. Okay. But, um, yeah, so in general, uh, like, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm from the background of writing desktop apps. So, I'm like, I'm always thinking about, like, you know, creating desktop apps as, like, as an initial goal, right? Um, so, and web technologies is kind of like, just like the newest, like tool I have to write desktop applications. Yeah. Um, it's really cool because it seems like, um, people are getting way more excited about writing desktop applications, you know, like, you know, the, the idea of writing a desktop application is kind of dying for a long time and Electron is kind of reviving it a little bit, especially like it's making people, especially for windows, because it's making people that would not normally write windows applications into windows developers, which is kind of interesting to me. Like people who are like deep in like this, the, you know, the Bay area hipster tech scene who would never like, you know, touch a windows machine with a 10 foot pole are like, here's an app. And, but like, if I like do like one thing, now I have a windows app, eh, I may as well. Like they're kind of like, why wouldn't I? And, uh, and so they do. And so like, you see these applications that people release, releasing way more windows applications because they're built on electron, which is super cool to me. Um, yeah, I have, I have a website that's completely a spa app, single page application uses angular. And I was very adamant about it actually not talking to any server. So the fact that it's web-based, the only reason that a server exists at all is just to get you that content, you know, like you can run it local, uh, just like you could anywhere else. So now like, listen to this, I'm seriously thinking about just throwing that into Electron because I, it seems like I wouldn't have to really change anything. And, and, and at first I was like, well, that seems kind of stupid because what's, what's the point? Like you could just go to the web page, but in my case, it's kind of clunky. Like it's, it's actually designed to interact with, um, or one of the features, it's really a feature, is to interact with local files. So, like, you can go on there and you can basically upload a file, manipulate it, and then and then download it. But of course, that is kind of awkward on the web, right? Because you're you're just like downloading it back to your downloads folder every time. Yep. So I could see like wrapping it into Electron Shell so that I actually have like a proper open and, and save dialog. So I mean, could I? seeing as how it is just a pure spa web application, would it be pretty easy for me to put that in there? And then step two, you know, just add in that, that open and save functionality. 
Yep, it would be super easy. Yeah, okay. that's a, this is a great example of something that would work really well as a, as a desktop application. Okay. Um, especially, um, so I wrote this blog post in the Slack engineering blog, which is Slack.engineering. You can have a .engineering. I didn't know this. Um, <laughs> Slack.engineering. Um, and so I wrote, uh, I've been writing this project, and it's really, uh, it took me a while, but uh, um, it's really cool, uh, called Electron Compile. And so what it does is it, you um, just include it in your project, and it makes Electron natively understand a lot of it, cool web technologies. So, like, uh, it makes it so that Electron natively understands TypeScript, for example, or less, or uh, ES6, ES2015, like async await. Okay. Um, and it does this by intercepting the way that Chromium loads code. It intercepts, like, like when you go to uh, navigate to a file URL, like file index.html, it intercepts it, takes all the ES6 code it finds and rewrites it to ES5, and then gives it back to Chromium. So it effectively means that it's an electron that knows all these web languages for free. Even in things like you can write like a TypeScript inside of a script tag, inside of uh, index.html, oh, wow. yeah. which is super yeah. cool. Um, and you'll get source map support, so like debuggers will work and like all this stuff just for free. Um, so it's really great for development. Like if you can like develop an electron on electron app, it's like so much more of a joy than like trying to develop, trying to deal with like setting up gulp and like running like a watch thing that like refreshes your page all the time. Um, uh, because it's like as if the browser just knows all these cool languages. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a cool project. I'll have to I'll have to take a look at whether or not I want to do that. That that sounds really interesting though for my for my project in particular, just because I've been so strict on making it essentially act like a desktop app. Like every operation is instantaneous uh, because it's all just you know it loads one time. And I've had people complain, you know, or not complain, but they've said like, oh, well, I have kind of a slow connection. Like, do you have a local version? It's like it doesn't matter. It takes a minute to load. You just wait, and then you never have to wait again. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, customization. Um, I think we, we, we talked about that a little bit, how much, you know, we're, one thing we wanted to ask was how easy it is to, to customize the shell. I mean, like, so in windows here, I have like my clothes, minimize, maximize and all that. Do I get that stuff for free? And like, what, what do I do around all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So basically the way it works is that, um, your opening app, um, is essentially a Node.js script. Um, so you have required, you have your, it's just running your app. Um, you're running your code and one of the classes you can create is called a browser window class. And so it's just a C, it's just an ES6 class. You just create with new, just like every other JavaScript thing you call, you call new browser window and a separate process is spun up that represents the window. So there's no Dom in this initial Node.js run loop. Right. Okay. Um, there's no, there's no, uh, when there's no Chrome, there's no anything. Um, it's just ex- exceeding your code. You call a new browser window. It pops up a window with a DOM. And so it loads a page and you can, you can have dev tools and you can poke into it and do all the things that you're used to with Chrome. Um, and so you can create as many or a few of those as you want. And so they're kind of different options. So by default, it will give you a kind of standard window with like you get, you know, close, minimize, maximize for free. Um, and on Apple, you actually have to let the operating system do close, minimize, maximize, um, or else uh, you will. So they can uh, use their terrible new. implementations. Well, no, because, yeah, because like, um, like the full screen, like when you click maximize in Mac, then it sh- does full screen. Yeah. Um, this API isn't public, um, so you can't fake it. Yeah. Um, um, so, um, the other thing you can do is create what's called a frameless window. Um, so you can actually create like windows that are tra- partially transparent. So just like, uh, in WPF, like you can create like transparent windows that like yeah. you could click through and stuff like that. Um, and then you're kind of on the hook to do all these window management things yourself. Um, but normally like it'll create like a regular, like standard window frame. Okay. Um, so you, you definitely don't have to implement minimize maximize yourself so one of the things that i really like about slack is it kind of auto updates itself is this a feature of electron or is that something that uh slack has had to kind of you know develop itself so electron comes with a basic auto updater um and on mac it's based on it's based on the squirrel project and so there's two versions of squirrel there's one for mac and one for windows um and they're completely different like the only thing that it shares is the name um because they're written, they're written by my my colleagues on the GitHub GitHub Mac uh, app 
Um, and uh, but I wrote Squirrel for Windows, um, and so uh, on on Windows, uh, Slack uses that. Um, and so uh, we use the API directly, but but Electron kind of has this like kind of basic auto update API that lets you check for updates and like give it a URL you want to check for and like um, say like quit and install, so it'll like you know exit your app, install the update, and restart it. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of it's like half it's like the basics of it are built in, but you can always like access like more customized things. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to know, and this might not be a question for you because I guess it doesn't have anything to do with Electron, so this might be a stupid question, but um, I've heard about people like creating bots for uh, for something like Slack. Now I assume that that must all be done server side, correct? Yeah. So bots are um, are usually usually set up a separate server for bots, um, and so you can set up um, like I think Microsoft came out with like the Microsoft yeah, Bot a framework. framework. Yep. Um, which I've, it seems pretty cool. And one of the cool things about bot framework is that it, it implements like the recommended way to add bots, which from a user perspective, so like the admin has to add a bot, right? It's an integration. Yeah. Um, and so the recommended way is this really clean implementation where there's this button that says add to Slack and you click on it and like walks you through a few things and they're really easy to answer questions and it just sets it up for you. And it's really like like from one of the challenges of writing a bot is getting people to install it and like walking through people through this like like kind of difficult setup process and so we've tried to make that as easy as possible um but yeah so bots are just like you're responding to um messages being sent to you um over a websocket connection and we have libraries for node.js and um python and a few other languages that help you do this and then you can send back your own um so bots are like, um, they're like a, they appear as a user, but they count as an integration. So like, um, you don't have to pay for bots the same way you have to pay for users in Slack okay. in like the paid, paid version of Slack and stuff like that. So, okay. Yeah. So if I build a bot, I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to start with like the Microsoft bot framework. Cause yeah, it looked like it made that really easy to, to integrate with Slack and some other things. Yeah, and, th- and, the th- and you don't have to worry about, like, you get to worry about the code of your bot and not, like, the, right. the logistics of, like, hosting, right. like, kind of, like, trying to do with mm-hmm. that. So, um, but bot can do, bots can do interesting things. They can attach files. They can, like, you know, like, add, like, you know, complicated, not just simple, like, text. They can add, like, create, like, tables almost, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, okay. bots are cool. So you mentioned before that the you know auto updater was uh, based on the Squirrel project. So I thought we'd talk a little bit more about that. So you know, kind of just looking at because I've looked at Squirrel on and off for quite a while now, mm. and it seems like you either really like or you really hate installer technology. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but uh, can you can you tell us you know what what made you start this project and you know what it does? Sure. So we started it in GitHub for Windows. So GitHub for Windows is a click once application. Um, ClickOnce is the technology, install technology from Microsoft. Um, and so ClickOnce, actually, like, I slag it on on the README, but I actually think it's, it's like, the frustrating thing is it's, like, 80% super great and, like, 20% show-stopping bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a bummer because, like, the, the model is really great. Like, it's, like, it updates without you have to do much. Like, um, from a developer perspective, it's pretty great because you can just, like, publish. Um, but, for example... Um, we wanted to switch GitHub for Windows to 64-bit, and I wrote all the code, did all the tests. It worked perfectly. Um, I went to update the installer, and part of the installer is it creates this manifest, right, of, like, what your application is and, like, what it should update. And as part of every file, it records the architecture that it, the file was created on. Yeah. And so it was all x86. And so I flipped it to AMD64, and I ship, uh, like, we try to test the update, and it's like, oh, well, I noticed that this binary is x86, and that one is AMD64. This is clearly an invalid update, and we should fail the update. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's no solution. You're, you're there's, no, there's, no, there's no, like, manual override. You have to, you have to ask every user to uninstall and reinstall. Oh. And so, like, there are so many scenarios where you have to ask the user to uninstall and reinstall, or it just doesn't work at all. Like, so, for example, authenticated proxies, just like, nope, like, you can't do it. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, uh, writing an installer can't be that hard. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> Famous last words. It took me three years of my life, um, to write an installer. Uh, it took me like two separate tries. Um, but yeah, so, um, the reason that, um, so squirrel.windows is different in a few ways. Um, 
the big thing is that it, it focuses on developer uh, developer joy, right? Uh, so if you've ever had to create like an MSI updater, um, you know that this is not a joy and it's extremely <laughs> yeah. painful. And Whatever the opposite of joy is. And it takes like, there's a lot of like, um, it's difficult to like, you have to like run through these whole big set of steps to like, like find out if your like one line change worked. Um, and that, that's a bummer. Um, so, um, Squirrel, Squirrel for Windows is based all on NuGet, right? So you create a NuGet package. Everyone knows how to create a NuGet package. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, there's like a lot of tooling, a lot of like, there's a whole ecosystem around creating NuGet packages. Like there's a UI, there's like Octopus Deploy, there's like all these things. Like tools in, in the Windows world know how to deal with NuGet packages. Yep. And so um, you create a NuGet package and then run it, run this tool on it. And there's some like a little bit of kind of it's a kind of a special NuGet package. Like um, some of the fields mean different things. Like, like your description is really important because that'll go in like the setups setups uh, description and like um, the uninstall program list, stuff like that. Um, so we use re- reuse as many fields as possible. Um, and so um, you run a tool on it, and then you get out setup.exe that you can hand to people. And more importantly, the other like kind of like red thread of Squirrel for Windows is that you don't need a server. You don't need an update server, quote-unquote. So, like, that's a big difference between Squirrel for Windows and Squirrel for Mac. And the thing that I, like, fought with them forever with, I was just like, sorry, like, this is the way we're doing it. (laughs) Squirrel for Mac always demands that you create a server. And so the idea is that we want to keep all the logic on the server. Um, And the client doesn't know anything. The client just, like, accepts an update and just, like, installs it blindly. Which is like, there's advantages to that, right? Like, because you can do things like, what if you're in the beta group or like you want like your employees to have different updates than your users. Um, and uh, you don't want anyone to be able to like reverse engineer that. Um, but like, I think the bigger benefit is being able to throw updates anywhere server you want. So you can put them on S3, you can put them on Azure Blob Storage, anything that can serve up files, so you don't have to have a server. You just need something that can give you files. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about that is that anytime and any place you can put an HTTP URL in Squirrel for Windows, you can also just put a path to a folder, which means that testing updates is super easy because you just point the update server to be like the folder where you just built the latest version. Okay. And so now testing updates isn't this nightmare of like, okay, well, I got to spin up a server on localhost and like point it there and like try to like, you know, like push some buttons and like rig up this fake environment. You're just like, okay, update from this folder. So what does it do? Like if you have it in like blob storage, does it sit there and, and pull it and figure in, how does it know? Like if there's an actually an update. So it pulls, it's really, really small file called releases. And so releases is this file that's, that's, it's in, it's just, um, a list of updates and uh, they're kind of like their size and their SHA-1. Okay. Um, and the file name is in this kind of specific format that has to be like a, it's kind of parsed. Um, and so the idea is that that file is human editable. So you can just like add or remove entries. If you ship a bad update and you want to stop people from getting it, you just like, you know, delete that line. Okay. That's awesome. Um, and so, and it's also like in a format that if you have to write any automation around it, it's really, really easy because it's just like, like integer tab, string, tab, string. Um, And so um, it pulls a really small file that you can like, caching is really easy. Like you can like put it on like CloudFront or something like that. Um, And um, if it finds that there's, it uses that file to calculate um, how to get from point A to point B. So one of the features that Squirrel for Windows has is um, Delta updates. So it will ship, it will calculate the difference between version 1.0 and 1.1 and then put that into a separate package. And so the client will say like, oh, I'm here. I want to be there. And it will add up the size of the deltas and say like, oh, is that bigger or smaller than the latest full version? And so like if it's if it's faster to el- delta update, then it'll do that um, versus like just downloading the latest okay. full version. Pretty cool. Yeah. So it actually saves us a huge amount of bandwidth, uh, especially for Electron applications that are are elect install packages like around like 50 or 60 MB. Um, but Delta packages can be as small as like 200 KB. Wow. So, so like it that. saves, it saves us a huge amount of bandwidth. Yeah. Um, uh, and it saves our so, users a huge amount of time and bandwidth as well. Right. Because they have to download all these. And like, 
if you're on if you're in certain countries like downloading a 60 MB thing could be like you know like two hours worth of work like um, it's actually bandwidth actually costs a lot of money in 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 um, certain places around the world yeah definitely so you mentioned earlier that <clears throat> one of the focuses was trying to be as dev friendly as possible so kind of like what is if I have, you know, my executable that I want to create an installer for, how quick can I get this uh, packaged up? So if you just want to like make a, like a one-off installer, it's actually super easy. So I made this video, if you search uh, on channel nine, um, where I actually demo that and you can just like build your project and like take the release folder and like dump it into like take NuGet package explorer and like, just like drag drop it in there, fill out some of the metadata, run squirrel on it, and then you'll have it set up executable. Um, so like making it one-off is really easy. And even like making it, making a final version that you're kind of like running these updates for is also pretty easy. Um, because like, you know, automating a NuGet package creating is pretty, you know, straightforward. Mm -hmm. So what about things like, uh, you know, I got to do like, I got to add something to the registry. I got to add a shortcut to the desktop. All the things that, uh, you know, like an MSI would do. I mean, is, is that like built in or do I have to just write some custom code for that? Or, you know, like how difficult is that? You do have to write some custom code. Um, and so the way that you do it is so like if you use like Wix or something, you have to add all these like plugins, like installer plugins, oh, yeah, quote unquote, nightmare. which is not so fun. Um, the way that Squirrel does it is it just calls whenever it's doing different interesting things like updating or installing or whatever, it just calls your program with certain parameters. Um, so you you like mark using an attribute in C sharp um, that your program knows about Squirrel events, like it's interested in in hearing about them. Um, or if you're writing a C plus plus app, you you include it in the resource file as like this magic line. Um, the attribute's way easier, of course. Um, so then when Squirrel runs through your runs through the package, uh, it says like, are any of these exe files interested in interested in Squirrel events? And if so, it just ex executes the application um, with special parameters, like a special flag. Okay. Yeah. And you get a certain amount of time. You get, I think, like uh, 15 seconds to do whatever you want. Okay. So you can create registry entries. It has a bunch of helpers to create like shortcuts and stuff. So like you'll be like, create shortcuts to this executable. And so if you don't have any applications that subscribe to these events, we'll just kind of provide you a default implementation that kind of like creates shortcuts for you. I like that though, because you get whatever language you wrote it in just works, right? <laughs> yep. You can write in whatever language you were. Yeah. More importantly, debugging those hooks is super easy because you just run yeah, it first. You just call it. No, that's you really nice. You don't need to, um, you don't need to like, like write some code, build an installer, run it, find out it doesn't work, swear a lot, change a line, build the installer. Like that's, that's, you, all you do to debug squirrel events is just run the program and see what happens. Yeah, because with something like Wix, I mean, it was it was pretty cool, but I also had to um, learn, you know, their whole thing and, like you said, those extensions and, you know, it was like every every time it was just such a hassle. But being able to have that thing call right back into the same program, use the same language, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and it makes it so that even though Squirrel is written in C sharp, um, Electron, of course, is not. Um, and so it means that you can write, you can package up Squirrel, uh, any application with a Squirrel installer. It doesn't matter what language it's written in, um, because it's all about just like launching executables. Okay. Awesome. Um, so, you know, let's just say I have a, a click once app already, you know, how easy is it to migrate that to Squirrel? Well, um, it's easy if you don't mind asking your user to uninstall and reinstall. If you if you don't want to do that, well, of course you don't want to do that because nobody wants to do that. It's a terrible thing to do. Um, so there, it's kind of like trying to like replace the engine of a plane while it's flying. Um, it's a little bit tricky. So what you do is you ship a click once update. Um, that when you start the app, because remember, like Squirrel, uh, unlike a lot of like installers, Squirrel is just a library. Like you can call into it. It has classes. It has methods. You can do whatever you want. It's not this kind of like weird like magic. Thing like black box that wraps your application. Um, and so because it's just a library, what you can do, the way you do it is that you ship a click once update that when your app and, and your app starts up, you start off the app, you know, doing regular things. But in the background, you actually download the NuGet package and then install it because you can install 
Squirrel applications because it's just a function, right? Yeah. Just like yeah. just like un- install, uninstall and install are just methods you can call. So you install the application again, and then you there's this library that um, the people at Wonderlist wrote called ClickOnce Uninstaller, where it'll like uninstall your ClickOnce application. So you essentially like double install the app and then uninstall your the yeah, like the ClickOnce one, and kind of like swap out like while it's running. So it's, it can be done. And that's, and that description sounds really complicated, but actually it's like not that bad. It's just like download a file and run a command on it and then run a different, like run a call a different command. So it's not too bad. Okay. But, um, but it's definitely a little bit of a magic trick. Okay. So electron shell, very cool. Squirrel, very cool. Um, anything else you wanted to mention on either of those technologies before we moved on? Um, no, that's a it was a good it was a good summary. I think we I think we talked it up pretty well. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in uh, taking my you know not that I have any time, but you know interested in taking my web application and and putting it into a uh, a desktop app just to see like what that would take, and uh, and that might make that experience a little bit better, especially if I get it almost for free. So I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, <clears> then I think one sh- thing I wanted to mention mm-hmm. um, it's just like the latest thing, the latest news in Squirrel for Windows World. Um, is uh, uh, the last thing we added recently is stage deploys. So it means that you can, uh, similar to like on like um, app stores like uh, Google Play, you can say stuff like, all right, um, 10% of users are going to get the latest version as uh, soon as I release, yeah. and then kind of ramp that up. So you can say like, all right, uh, it's, it's going pretty well. Like let's put it up to 50%. Like now 50% of people get the latest version. Yep. Um, and you can ramp that up over time. And so it's really like a, if you ha- if you have like so Slack is like one of the is the largest Electron app uh, in terms of deployed users, um, and so uh, and of course we run in we're in, we're an enterprise application so we run in these very um, uh, in, uh, interesting machines uh, that have very uh, <laughs> interesting configurations set by their. Uh, IT guy interesting policies. Their 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 <laughs> IT guy has strong opinions. Yes, um, and. Uh, um, so, um, we definitely, uh, stage rollouts are one thing that helps kind of like uh, shield us okay. from some of the surprising things, um, surprising things that our customers do with windows. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a pretty, and that's a pretty like a feature that I don't think any other, um, any other installers. Yeah. I've never mind. seen that. I never even thought to ask that, but yeah, you're right. I mean, in today's world, like that's absolutely required. We do it on the web. We should do it on the desktop as well. Yep, totally. Cool. Carl, what do you got for the dev tip of the week? So the dev tip of the week uh, is referencing an article that uh, on the Building Apps for Windows blog. Uh, they're highlighting how in the anniversary update, uh, SQLite now is going to be shipping in Windows 10. So you as a developer are going to have a really easy time adding this uh, database technology to your UWP apps. Uh, the other reason why I wanted to mention it is because I'm also including a video from Mr. Paul Betts I've on Akavash. Cool. And <laughs> yeah, you have building, yet building, a- uh, building, uh, getting the getting SQLite onto into your UWP app was always like frustrating. You had to like flip all these it switches was. and like download this special thing. Um, so hearing that it's in the box is uh, pretty great. Yeah, it is. And we'll have a link in our show notes to your Evolve talk on Akavash. And as well, a link to the repo for it. Cool. Yeah. So Akamash, uh, for people who aren't familiar, is a, is this kind of data storage library for, for native applications and mobile applications. Um, and it was originally like um, a library for caching. So like just saving stuff off that you didn't care about or you just wanted to save like an image cache or whatever. Um, but then I found it was kind of useful for everything. Like it was, I just started putting everything in there. Um, so it's really this kind of like... Um, if you've ever like, you're like, oh, I guess I could save JSON to a file and eh, I guess I could use SQLite or like a database, man, that's a pain. Um, Akamash is this really like easy to use, uh, way to save and load settings or cache information or whatever. And it's really designed around native and mobile applications. Um, so a lot of these like, um, platforms were designed around like desktops and servers. And so like you'd spin it up and it immediately consume like 50 MB of memory. And you're like, well, on the phone, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work. Um, so it's it's very much designed around um, applications that want to start really quickly and um, have a little bit, not that much overhead to get started. So I got a teaser for you to watch the video. Akavash is built on SQLite, but it's faster than SQLite. Ooh. Yep. 
so it's faster than the way that users typically use. Oh, you, it, it's a yeah. This is a teaser. You can't tell them anymore. Yeah, so <laughs> I thought that. I just thought that's that was the trick weird. is that it's very it's very easy to misuse SQLite and yeah. uh, have it turn it in from a fast database into a very slow database. Yep. So that was that was my big takeaway. Anything else you want to mention on that, Carl? Nope. Okay, Paul. So we play a game on this show. <clears throat> I'm stalling here. Okay. So what you need to do is you need to pick a number between one and four, inclusive. Okay, I will pick uh, two. Two. Two is not available on that card. Uh, Here we go. Okay, here we go. Would you rather have to try to smash three attacking rattlesnakes with only a bowling ball Mm. or sit still while thousands of honeybees form a beard on your face? Mm. I'm going to use the bowling ball. Okay. I feel as if I have more, uh, more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Autonomy in this scenario. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Good choice. Good choice. Carl, pick a number. I I pick four. Four. Would you rather eat 10 live earthworms or lay perfectly still for one hour in a box filled with them? Um, I will choose the latter. I, you know, when I was a kid, maybe I would choose eating weird things, but I'm not so into that anymore. That'd be like, you know, I suppose the first 10 minutes would be like really weird, but you'd probably get used to it after a while. (laughs) Like if you could take a nap during it too, that would (laughs) really help. Yeah, because I don't know. I mean, are they really like inclined? I guess they'd probably crawl up you, right? I mean, like over your body. And well, there's only one way to find out the MS Dev Show, cha- Dev Show Challenge. <laughs> Join us next week where we put Carl in with some live earthworms. Um, okay, what else we got here? Okay, so Paul, uh, where can people find you? Uh, I am at Paul C. Betts on Twitter and GitHub and uh, everywhere else on the internet. Um, and, uh, yeah, so my GitHub repo, uh, or GitHub profile is a, a good thing to check out. Uh, I have a blog at log.paulbets.org, okay. um, that I never update, but it's there. <laughs> you might find it by Googling something. So that's, that's better than nothing. Um, and, um, yeah, so follow me on Twitter, I guess. Very cool. And it looks like Carl's been gathering all the links that you've mentioned. He'll have all those in there as well. So where can people find you, Carl? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So, Paul, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about uh, Slack, Electron Shell, Squirrel, all very cool stuff. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.